This is the 71st edition of WFA Talks. I'm News Director Greg Collard, and with me is political reporter Tom Bullock and uh, Lisa Morf. I almost called you, uh, <laughs> you're, I got caught up on your last name again. Oh, that's all right. I'll take my old name, too. <laughs> well, you know, we haven't done this this podcast since I think you got married. So that's, yeah, that's, a, joke. A, that's a joke. No, it's been it's, a while. It's been over a year since you've been married. <laughs> so anyway, it's been a while, guys. Yeah. Uh, a, a month. A month. Because and the reason being that it's just too darn busy lately to do this show, <laughs> to do this podcast. Get, and we have the Friday News Roundup on Charlotte Talks, yes. which does a very good job yes, it does. of uh, going, try. Yeah. going over the week's news. It's been really yeah. good. It's been really good. Yeah, it has. It's been fun to do, but I, you know, I miss, I have, honestly, I miss WFAE Talks because we can kind of get into other aspects. Mm-hmm. Well, there, mm-hmm. there's a uh, last couple, when we usually do this on Fridays, it's just been, I have all intentions of doing it and getting you all together, but you're working on a story or I'm editing stuff and it's just... Uh, it's just been crazy. Constant churn. Yes. And, of course, uh, this week was uh, no exception, but we're doing it anyway. <laughs> Governor McCrory dropped a particular odd bomb, I would say, that earlier <laughs> this week. It wasn't uh, – it was more of a I – mean, maybe a dud, I think it's fair to say, because this order of 93 concerning HB2 really didn't do much. It was billed as doing a lot, being significant by the governor. And was this Tuesday or Wednesday when this came out? I think it was Tuesday. It was Tuesday. Yes. And we were like, what the heck is this? Trying to figure it out. And you did a good job of pretty much showing that there's really not much to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was not even much sizzle to the stake in this case. And, you know, one of the things that um, that I found really interesting is um, going through some of the national media coverage of what this executive order did or did not do. Um, and if you haven't really followed our coverage on it, um, Executive Order 93 – uh, Pat McCrory put it out Tuesday afternoon. I think it came out about 2 o'clock in the right. afternoon. And it it sounded like – I mean the first line of the press release was really interesting. It was, you know, I'm doing this in order to strike a balance between the the privacy and equality for our, all North Carolinians. That is a lofty opening <laughs> sentence, especially when it deals with House Bill 2. So we were like, OK, let's find out what's in here. So you go through it and there's really not a ton. Um, the first three points – really just in fact not really they full out reinforce what house bill 2 does um you know the bathroom issue you still have to use the the facility that corresponds with the sex on your birth certificate private businesses can have their own non-discrimination policies um yep that was always the case and remain the case under house bill 2 um municipalities can have their own non-discrimination ordinances for their or policies rather for their own employees only yep that was there too and then you get down to the things that it kind of does. One is it sounded really grand. And in that video statement that McCrory released, um, you know, I am expanding uh, protections uh, across the state, I think is the way he said mm-hmm. it or, or some such. I've expanded our state equal employment opportunity policy to clarify that sexual orientation and gender identity are included. And he did, in fact, create uh, a couple new uh, buckets for the non-discrimination uh, protections. Those are include gender identity and gender expression, but they only apply to a subset of state employees. Not even it's not even clear if it. In fact, I've heard from a number of people that it doesn't apply across all state employees. Executive branch employees, specifically the executive branch. And then the other thing is he's uh, he's calling for a, a, another controversial section of the bill to be repealed by the General Assembly, and that deals with um, a, a measure in the in the law 
that eliminates an individual's right to sue in state court over a case of discrimination. And that's where the national media coverage gets really interesting. The Atlantic, um, which has some really great journalists on it, they had a story about that and about this executive order. And they say that that section of the of the now law seems to be have been put in place um, by mistake. I think they refer to it as some kind of clerical error. Mm. Um, and that's just not the case. I mean, I listening through to the floor debate, right. there's this really fascinating moment where Buck Newton, Senator Buck Newton, who is also running for attorney general, he is a lawyer. He knows what he's talking about, <clears throat> said flat out, this section will not change. We want this section. We want to make it so people have to file discrimination cases in federal court. That's a better way for them to to do it. No, it wasn't an error. Um, but it's just interesting as, as everybody digs through the law and, and its complications and its aftermath. <laughs> I think it's a, a headline that's gonna, just going to keep popping up again and again. What's been the response as far as changing that section um, in the legislature? Have we heard that much about their willingness to do that? Well, no. I mean, we've heard from I mean, we talked to um, Senator Jeff Tart who's a Republican from Mecklenburg County, he said, oh, yeah, you know, there's some support for this in the hallways. People, I I think this sounds good. Um, uh, Representative uh, Charles Jeter said basically the same. Those are, they're both Republicans. Tart voted for the bill. Jeter was actually already uh, on vacation when the special session was called for, so he wasn't there. Um, One Democratic lawmaker said he supports repealing it just yeah, because of uh, and he voted for it. Yeah, yeah right, right. Um, there were eleven, in fact, eleven mm-hmm. Democrats who voted for the bill in the House. Um, but what's more telling to me is the fact that we have yet to hear from Senator Phil Berger, who, of course, is the president pro tem of the Senate. And he just had a pretty blanket statement, right when when the order came out. Yeah, yeah. And and that that <laughs> that statement came out very quickly after the executive order. It was not much of a wait at all. And he, you know, said. McCory's actions just, you know, take the legs out of the the left's arguments about this. Um, but he does. He never said, and he still hasn't said, whether or not he would support even bringing up a measure to repeal that section of the law. And neither has Tim Moore, the Speaker of the North Carolina House. So we really don't know yet if um, if who's right, if Senator Tart's right, and there is support for this, or if silence is more telling. Well, one thing I want to ask you about – first, I want to say, I mean, our, our staff response was awesome when that yeah. uh, executive order came out. You went to work, Tom, started making calls, but so did everyone else. Yeah, everybody. Uh, Lisa uh, Duncan then starts getting legislative response. Michael starts working. He's filing some spot news on this and everyone is just trying to – Yeah, get, David get Borax. Yeah, David Borax. The one who talked to Senator Tartan, Senator – Exactly. Representative Jeter, yeah. And everyone in the newsroom just went to work and was uh, – Giving you a lot of su- support yeah. and for the story you produced uh, well, that evening and that and the next morning. So, good. It was, it's cool to see all that in action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's um, it has a feel. It's almost like in the movies when people you know you want want to see those moments of stop the press and everybody mm-hmm. gets to work on a story. It's really cool to be a part of. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to ask you about: you've done some research onto another case, Romer versus Evans, out of Colorado, and you've. By now, you, you, we had intended to have a story on this, but they keep there keeps there's there so many developments with HB two. <laughs> you haven't had a chance to to uh, to finish it. But there was a case out of Colorado in the early '90s that yep. is similar 
to this law. Not yep. apples to apples, really, is it? It's if it's not apples to apples, it's you know Honeycrisp to Granny Smith. Okay, it's close. pretty close. <laughs> well, tell us a little about that and its similarities with. And it was overturned by the state by the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, it was actually. I think it was in 1994. It was the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So um, back in the early 90s. Um, Colorado passed this measure known as Amendment 2. And what Amendment 2 did, and this will sound very familiar, is it barred municipalities from extending discrimination or non-discrimination protections to members of the LGBT community. And it did it in a slightly different way, but it still accomplished a similar feat that you have seen here in the outcome of House Bill 2. And what got me thinking about this was actually um, when House Bill 2 first was kind of running around, um, when it would, you know, the reaction started building, you heard a whole lot about, you know, this city says, oh, well, employees can no longer go to North Carolina for, you know, non-necessary travel. Mm-hmm. And you heard states doing the same thing. Well, one of the people who was trying to figure out what to do about it was um, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. And he had this great line where he's like, you know, I'm not sure – I'm not sure if boycotts or these kinds of bans are the right thing. And he said, you know, it just reminds me of House Bill 2 or sorry, of Amendment 2 and how hard it was for our state to deal with that. And back then when Amendment 2 was passed and signed into law, Colorado received this really, um, well, let's just call it an unofficial nickname as the state of hate. Hmm. And there was a huge business boycott. It really hurt Denver. Um, It really affected the state in some very real ways. And after the law was passed, the lawsuits began in in a very similar way that we've seen already with the first federal suit uh, filed against House Bill 2, which was filed just, what, less than a week after the bill was signed. The bill was signed on Wednesday night. The lawsuit – the federal lawsuit was filed on Monday morning. Mm -hmm. And as this case – these cases worked their way through the federal level, it eventually reached the United States Supreme Court and – they eventually overturned it. Um, Romer versus Evans was the first, arguably, case in um, in the U.S. Supreme Court's history that affirmed some right to or gave some rights to the LGBT groups, um, to individuals, that you cannot be blocked out from receiving these kinds of protections. And there are a lot of similarities. But it was what also made it really interesting to me is if you if you think about the U.S. Supreme Court right now, You know, we've obviously got a vacancy. It's ending in a tie, you know, Mm -hmm. a couple of times so far. And it may sound like if this gets the Supreme Court, if we haven't filled that seat by then, um, that it's really not going to go anywhere. But one of the surprise twists to me for Romer versus Evans, at least the story of Romer versus Evans, is the lawyer who stepped up to do pro bono work for the LGBT community and actually helped argue the case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. His name was John Roberts, and that is now Chief Justice John mm-hmm. Roberts. And it was something that he was lauded for during his confirmation hearings. So it's, you know, it's very interesting. And, I'm you know, you and Anthony Kennedy wrote the decision. That's right. Still. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of these things where past does not necessarily mean prologue, but there are a lot of similarities. And as this as the, when the cases start working their way up, I'm very curious to see what, what happened. Well, hopefully uh, – He'll be given some time to develop the story a little bit more. Yeah, if only my, if only my <laughs> boss would agree with that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, touche. Thanks for all your, your hard work on this. It's been mm-hmm. fantastic work. No, sure. Thanks. For sure. Well, Lisa, we got a surprise at CMS this week. 
the school board meeting at the end, they suddenly passed uh, or, or adopted some gu- a draft of guiding they, principles. They basically checked them out. Ann Clark presented the the guiding principles that the the staff had come up with, and um, you know the board took a look. I'm sure they had taken a look prior mm-hmm. to this, but I mean it was kind of they were working on this at the through the last minute, so um, it was not on the agenda until the the very beginning of that meeting. The, the draft includes just basically continuing the policy of guaranteeing access to home schools and making socioeconomic status a factor in magnet lotteries. Now and and drawing boundaries and too. Draw, and drawing boundaries. So, what does this mean? I mean, I mean, uh, we say home schools guaranteeing access to home schools, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be guaranteed access to your neighborhood school, right? I mean, I mean, if you could draw the boundary however you want, that's my question. What does this what well, does this they, mean as far as the the drawing of boundaries? Well, they are careful to say homeschools instead of neighborhood schools, and I'm not totally sure of the significance of that. I, I uh, but um, they do call a homeschool something that's within proximity to where a student lives. So proximity is a big thing. Is there a definition of proximity? No, there <laughs> isn't a, de- a definition of proximity. Um, so this was something that a lot of, uh, you heard a lot of suburban parents pushing saying, Hey, we want a homeschool guarantee. And this does say, Hey, you'll have access to a school close to home, but you know, it, it leaves the board a good amount of leeway too. Um, because for example, you know, socioeconomics, it, it says, you know, that will be a way to draw mm-hmm. boundaries. It, it stresses, especially for newly established schools, but it doesn't. It doesn't limit it to that. To that. So, I mean, in many ways, this is a pretty broad document um, that they can do quite a quite a bit with. That's really interesting. The the whole you know the boundary issue is, of course, the, the core of this. Whether or not you know kids were going to be bused, although busing, I don't believe, was ever actually brought up. Yeah, sort of this cross town busing. Thing. Yeah, yeah, but. Does it seem to you like this when they're talking about boundaries, it really is just for new construction? Is this like when we build a new school, we can, you know, rejigger the lines to to get at those socioeconomic, I mean, poverty pockets, basically? Yeah, I mean, I think that will be something that this document says they would do for but, for new schools. But, you know, it's the question is, you know, to what extent would you do it to existing schools? Hmm. And it doesn't. It doesn't really answer that question. Um, you know, it is it is a very serious thing when you change a boundary. And CMS has taken that very seriously in the past. So, um, you know, I don't know to what extent there is an appetite Cause for doing that. Because it makes it of Mint Hill, uh, Rocky Mountain High School. And, or was Rocky, Rocky River. Ma- Ro- oh, yes, Rocky River High School yeah. in Mint Hill. Uh, very few people in Mint Hill get to go to Rocky River High School yeah, and that, and, and because and that of was, how the boundary was. Yeah, yeah and that was an instance <laughs> that was brought up this week when they were trying to get their heads around this. So, I mean, even the board members have, have questions about what, what this looks like. What comes next now that we have this document? Yeah, well, so it's a draft now. So next week they're going, on Wednesday, they're going to hold a public hearing on this. Uh, and so people can come in and weigh in on it. And then the plan right now at least, is to vote on these guiding principles the following week, uh, Tuesday, April 26th, I believe. Um, And then the board also wants to hire a consultant, uh, someone who knows how to do student assignment, who's done a lot of this work in the past, and come in and try to start putting together a plan. 
these consultants are they from different parts of the country are they are they from academic institutions yeah they are from different parts of the country and a couple of them are from maybe all of them are from academic institutions um there's one from UCLA Civil Rights Center. There's a, a guy up in um, who's with Columbia who leads their urban education leadership team up there. You now, know. I'm always curious with the hiring of, of consultants for something that sounds like school districts probably did on their own for a very long time. It, why do they need – I mean, this is an era of big <laughs> mm-hmm. data and you would think that we've already identified all the, the pockets and you would hope that the school board has gone through all kinds of different iterations of – the areas that need help and and at least ideas on how to help them. Does it strike you as odd that they're hiring outside consultants? Well, I talked to the CMS student assignment guy who's been doing this for uh, many, many years now. I said, hey, you you guys have been always doing this on your own and and have made some pretty big changes that way too. And he, he said, yes, yes, we have. You know, uh, I said, well, what do you think about a consultant coming in? You know, what, how is this going to help? And I mean, he was he was pretty uh, even keel about it. I mean, um, he, he he thought he said, well, th- you know, I definitely see the merit in having someone from the outside come and do this. Um, it's it's not clear to me exactly, you know, how the consultant will work with the district. You know, if it's just bringing some of these. Uh, bigger picture ideas that other districts have have done and, um, you know, seeing adjusting that to CMS, trying to weigh what's on the ground. Um, you know, it, it could even be a type of a mediator is uh, hmm. in my mind how I imagine it playing out. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I think that it'll probably be another month or so before they get behind someone. And, you know, I'd I don't know to what extent how controversial that will be. I mean, you know, I know there's one of the consultants worked with uh, Jefferson County, the Louisville, Louisville, um, Kentucky School District. And, and that's a district that has done quite a bit with trying to balance poverty, um, even working beyond uh, county lines. Um, so, I mean, this could be an interesting process in and of itself. I mean, are they consultants that work with a variety of of different school districts. I mean, can you get much, learn much from, can you judge them? How much, how based, much can you judge them yes, I'm, based I'm, on their past? I'm, I'm guessing they go to different school districts and of that have different needs. And Well, yeah. And, and it's not like these people are coming in and mm-hmm. saying, this is the plan you should have. Mm-hmm. I mean, the board is the main movers behind a plan, right? I mean, they have to say, what they're looking mm-hmm. for. And, you know, that's another thing. If they have these guiding principles in place, I think that is an advantage to the board saying, hey, someone from the outside isn't telling us what's right for our district. We are going to have this document ready and say, based on this, this is, you know, the direction we want to take. What do you think? How do you think we should get there? That'll help them do that. Well, the other part of these of these uh, guiding of this draft of guiding principles was is concerns magnet lotteries and the role of socioeconomic status. Anything that, is that that's pretty general too. We don't know about what what exactly that means. How much a priority your no that that will is be given. Yeah, that's completely up in the air. And, and CMS has done done this before. You've gotten um, you know a priority if uh, you were low income for getting into a magnet school. Also, they, if, they already have that. Uh, not right now, but they've done it before. They did away with it. Okay. Um, and in the way they did it before, um, it almost didn't come into play. But I don't foresee, you know, having magnet schools with eighty percent 
uh, kids from low-income families there. You know, I, I think they really are trying to get a balance at schools. Why did they get rid of that requirement before or that, that priority before? It was kind of useless the way they put it down because there were a variety of other ways that you got priorities before mm-hmm. that. So all these kids were getting priorities because of sibling or because they live close or because of this and this. And so by the time you got down to that level, it wasn't even mm-hmm. helping students. There's, there's another another part of this that I find really interesting, too, is the idea that, OK, you get priority for going to a magnet school. But. Are they do you think they're just going to I mean, are they going to put the financial backing behind whatever they decide to call a magnet school to make it a magnet school? Or is it just slapping the word magnet at the end of a middle school or or elementary school or high school name? Well, if you want people, I think if you want genuine diversity, it's got to be a good program, right? You have to you have to be able to attract everyone to that program. Um, And, yeah, it's going to cost money, too. Part of. You know, part of their building plan is to get more of these magnets in place throughout the county because, for example, southern Mecklenburg County really has, you know, very, very few magnets in north Mecklenburg County, too. But, yeah, I mean, it's certainly um, it'll take it'll take money to do that. I mean, part of the plan, too, from these draft principles is to create more partial magnets. So magnets in a in a regular school to help break up concentrations of poverty or to help um, turn around a school that's already struggling. Well, here's hoping that the new partial magnets aren't just basically taking parking spaces with trailers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of, of magnets, uh, I was shocked when you sent me a, a story. Uh, it's on a Sunday night, and the uh, plan for next year is to actually put Waddell, make Waddell High School a magnet school. And, it, yeah. and and, and the, the language academy is going to a former home, although with new it's old home, but with new it's been upgraded, I guess. But it was so Waddell was a was a homeschool. It was so controversial when they closed it and put this made it and turned it into a magnet. Uh, and now they're opening it again or making it a. a yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's really intriguing to see. I mean, there were about, you know, 10, 11, 12 schools that were closed you know, whether it was the program, you know, like Waddell, those kids told to go to other schools and this, you know, language magnet comes in um, and to see those reopening. I mean, there's there's a couple on that on that list, on that bond list. Back to the to the guiding principles, no matter what your perspective is, my takeaway from this is the devil's in the details and we don't know the details yet. Yeah, that's fair to say. So, all right. Well, guys, another fun thing this week or depressing thing to pay on your point of view but uh but i will say we all had a a good laugh because it was so pathetic looking at patrick cannon's videos this week <laughs> as he's uh taking bribes and lets out a lets out a yell that brings back to image uh oh what was the name of uh what was who was that presidential candidate uh oh d- dean yeah. Howard, it Dean. Was, Howard Dean. It was a bit it's of Howard a, Dean like it a little. It was a bit like a Dean scream. It's true. <laughs> and he's fanning as he's fanning the money. Oh my gosh! It's just it's disgusting. Yeah, but you know it answers so many questions because I remember Greg when we were sitting in here um, the night that Patrick Cannon resigned, and we got that co- the copy of the resignation letter. And I remember both of you and I were sitting here going, "This is odd," and it was really strange because. You know, normally resignation letters say, I'm I'm only doing this because I don't want to be a distraction for the city. I'm going to fight this in court. I will prove my innocence. I did not do this. 
There was none of that, none of it in Patrick Cannon's resignation letter. And now, after all of this, you can see why. Because when you hear the almost at times giddy nature in his voice, the jokes he makes, how he is clearly self-aware that what he is doing (laughs) is not just wrong but illegal – um, the look on his face, like watch actually being able to see a mayor take bribes in the, in, in his corner office. It's pretty astounding. I knew it was there and it still surprised me. <laughs> and uh, if you want to see so, it, we've got it yeah, on our website. Yeah, you should totally check it out. It's worth it. It is. Jeez. Uh, Although the strangest thing there, did you, do you remember the video where that shows him taking the bribes in the mayoral office? Yes. So they've got that red couch. <laughs> And if you notice, the, the FBI, you know, altered voices and, and covered up things like blurred out images, to, you know, for whatever reason. <laughs> One of the funnier things to me is when he's taking the bribe in the mayor's office, it's the red couch and a window seal. And three things are blurred out by the FBI. I'm assuming they were family photos or photos mm-hmm. of friends or something like that. But not blurred out for whatever reason. In the corner is a big carolina panthers logo so it was just the strangest thing to be like no we can't show family but man let's all cheer for the panthers i missed that that's funny (laughs) all right guys well uh and and thanks thanks for uh coming on board for uh sorry for the hiatus and thanks for maybe it won't be a month before we do our next one it won't be a month we all try to yeah let's try to make it a at least two weeks well, and Greg, I just, for the record, I want to say, you look good in both an orange necktie and orange suit. Why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thanks. Thanks. thanks.